0: well I want to invite you that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 49 we're just one chapter away from finishing this book Genesis 49 here tonight and we've come to the place where Jacob is blessing his sons he's already blessed Joseph and he blessed Joseph by the way of blessing two of his sons Joseph received a double blessing because he received a blessing by two of the sons that were born to him in Egypt. And now that Jacob has blessed Joseph's sons, now he's going to bless his own sons. And this was the now time where Joseph is among his brothers. Jacob, his father, calls them all together to give a blessing to this large family of 12 sons. In fact, we tell the message tonight, living a God-centered life. Living a God-centered life. Why? Because both Jacob and Joseph kept God at the center of their lives. This should be a banner over our lives as well. This should be the theme, the proclamation of faith, the statement of faith in your life that you would say, I'm living a God-centered life, a Jesus-centered life. You know what that means? Everything revolves around God. Everything revolves around Jesus. My life is surrounded by one core aspect, and that is Christ, that is God the Father, that is God the Holy Spirit. So Jacob and Joseph now are there with the other 12 brothers this is a large family meeting the blessings on jacob's sons and also the future of israel is told here and just think about how what kind of meaning this looks like because he has all 12 sons in one room he's going to bless them and prophesy over their lives i heard a story of three men that were waiting in a waiting room of a hospital And each of their wives was about to give birth. They were all in labor, each separate wife of these three men. And one of the nurses comes out as these three men are in the waiting room and asks, well, who's Mr. So-and-so? And and one of them raises their hands and and then she says, well, congratulations. Uh, Your wife just had twins. And he said, well, that's wonderful. We're having twins. He's excited about this. And he said, well, what's Interesting And what a coincidence that is, Is because I'm the third baseman for the Minnesota Twins. So that's a coincidence. Well, 20 minutes later, the same nurse comes out and says, well, who's Mr. So-and-so? Another gentleman raises his hand and he says, well, I want you to know something. Congratulations, your wife has given birth. You're having triplets. And he said, well, that is awesome. And what a coincidence as well, because I work for the 3M company. Well, after these two men heard these news, the third man falls on the floor. He's rolling around in pain. And he says, I just want you to know I work for the 7 Up Company. <laughs> Suspecting. <laughs> but here are 12 sons. And Jacob has the responsibility to pass on the family spiritual faith and heritage onto these 12 sons. Just like you have a responsibility to the children that God has given us. I know these children are a blessing. The Bible says that they are a blessing from the Lord like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Happy is the man who has his quiver filled. We should be happy when we have a house full of children. And some would say amen until they start screaming and yelling their heads off, right? The Bible says, happy is the man who has many kids. There Jacob pronouncing encouragement and a warning to his children. Both things, encouragement and warning. Those are two things that we as parents must pass on to our children, our faith by way of encouragement, our faith by way of warning. The Bible says, fathers do not provoke your children, Ephesians 6, 4, but bring them up in the teaching or training and admonition of the Lord. You know what that means, the admonition of the Lord? It means to place something before the mind of someone else. That's what we are to do as parents, to place something before their mind, that is the gospel, confronting, warning, urging them to know the faith for themselves. So these are Jacob's last words. He's doing those two very things, encouraging warning, praising, prophesying. And you know what his last words are also filled with here? Not only a revelation of the character of his sons, but also a revelation of God's purposes for their lives. This is what your character is, Reuben, Simeon, Naphtali. And he goes down the list of all 12 sons, including Joseph. These are all your character traits, along with God's divine purpose, in your life. This is what, what God has for you. It's important that we hear from God and that we know what God's purposes are for us. What is God's purpose for the nation of Israel in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For I know the thoughts or the plans that I think toward you, says the Lord, to give you what? A future and a hope. This is all filled with a future and a hope for the nation of Israel. The future and hope of Israel are here in Genesis 49. Tribe upon tribe, line upon line. And notice there in Genesis 49 verse one, and Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what you shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given us your word to reveal not only our own character, but also your plan. Lord, as we read your word, would you show us your plan for our lives, the future you have for us, the hope that is found in Jesus. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name, together we would say, Amen. So Jacob here is calling his sons. This is the future that is unveiled now. This is the future that is prophesied over them. And he says, I'll tell you about the future. So come so that I can tell you what will happen to each and every one of you. And notice what he says, in the last days. He's describing the future of his descendants. This is he as a patriarch, his last act, as an heir of Abraham and Isaac that he's prophesying blessings over his children one by one. And this is also the first declared prophecy from God through a man in the Bible. Here you find it in Genesis 49. And in verse two, notice what he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen. Two words, hear and listen. How many of us know that our children can hear but they're not listening? How many times does God speak to us and we're not listening? Well, he says the very same thing to them. Come you sons of Jacob, listen to your father. As I tell you about the future, the prophecy, I'm lifting my voice, I have something to say. What else does it say about Israel or Jacob? That he's reached a place of maturity in his own life, he realizes, but God has made him both. God has made him or made out of him Israel, governed by God. But he also realizes in his own immaturity what he battles with, Jacob. Do you see that he refers himself both as Israel and Jacob there in one verse? Come here, listen. You sons of Jacob, listen to Israel. He understands that he is a man that battles between the spirit and the flesh, between being a man that is given to the appetites of the flesh and a man that must be submitted, governed by God. He calls them over, listen to your father. I think it's important that all of us here today listen to our father, God, as he speaks to us through his word. But it's also important that we value, pay attention to this please, that the previous generation, Values the wisdom and knowledge of our fathers that have gone before us. That not only means our spiritual fathers and pastors and leaders, but our biological earthly fathers that God has given us. Especially if you have a God-fearing father, he says there there is wisdom here in listening to what God has to say and speak through your father to you. Listen to what your father says is saying. How many times do young people, as we grow up, we think that, you know what? Our fathers don't know anything. They're out of touch with time. As you grow up, then, then you come back when you're older to talk to your father. You know, my father has grown so much, now you think. Now he knows everything. <laughs> but it's not he who has grown, it's you who have matured and realize how much you don't know. In verse three, notice he calls his firstborn son And he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. There's a responsibility that comes with being a firstborn. There is an expectation of having a spiritual inheritance. There is an anticipation of having the spiritual leadership of the home. He calls him something, my might and the beginning of my strength. He says, Reuben, you're you're my strength. You're the child of my youth. Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're my pride. You're my joy. He begins to lift up Reuben here. In fact, notice what he calls him in verse three. He says, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Not only are you my firstborn and my pride and my joy, but you are first in rank or you are excellent above all others in dignity and you are excellent first in rank above all others in power why because he was the firstborn he was the person that would have to inherit the spiritual leadership of that family but what did reuben do we we notice here through what he's going to prophesy over him that he forfeit the blessing of spiritual inheritance due to his pride He gave up the ability to walk in God's calling for his life because of emotional sin. It's possible that God had a great plan for your life, but in your pride, in your recklessness, in your emotional self-will, you went a different direction. You forfeit the blessing and plan that God had for your life. And the spiritual inheritance and the spiritual leadership and the blessing of being used by God because you chose a different way. And notice what happens here. He, he lifts him up, but then he calls him something in verse 4, unstable as water. <laughs> Just when Reuben thought he maybe, we would probably was standing up a little taller as he heard his father speak there. Maybe growing confidence and hearing his father speak of him as first in dignity, first in power, my pride and my joy. And then he calls him, you are as unstable as water. You should have been something else, but you're not. You know what the word unstable means? You are as unruly as water is. Think about how when water is turbulent, when water is moved through the winds, it can cause a lot of harm and damage and be very dangerous. Well, he says the very same thing about Reuben. You are unruly. You, you are now as a turbulent sea. You are causing damage. You have caused harm now. You are dangerous. This is who you are. You're unstable just like water is where you can't expect which way it will go. You shall not excel. I want you to underline that in your Bible. It says you're not going to grow anymore. You're not going to excel. You're not going to be prosperous. You will not be first. This is the reality that Reuben had to face. Having been the firstborn, having grown in the way of the culture, where he would expect the spiritual leadership of his family and his father's last words to him was, you will not be the first. You will not inherit the blessing, why? Because you went up to your father's bed and you went into his wife, in Genesis chapter 35, and you slept with my wife, you defiled my bed through sexual immorality. This is now Jacob remembering the sins of his son, Reuben. And he's rebuking him there on the spot in front of everyone. He says, I, I want you to know how presumptuous you were in your sin. By coming up and taking your father's bed, you, you-, you tried already to take this position of spiritual leadership by the flesh, but by-, by force, by coming in and taking my wife. You, you thought that that was the way to spiritual leadership. You thought that that was the way to inherit the place of spiritual responsibility that I have. You you wanted to solidify the claims that you were the first by taking my wife in my bed. You see, there's something very dangerous of trying to take the position that God already gave you, but by your own strength. How many times the Lord has told you, this is what I have for you, and then you try to grab it and take it instead of receiving an inheritance? God doesn't want you to take, you know what God wants you to do? To receive. How do you receive it? In humility, by grace. Not by striving, not by forcing things. Not by trying to solidify a claim, not by grabbing and taking what you think is yours. There is a right way of doing things, there is a wrong way of doing things. And here we see in verses three and four that whatever a man sows, that so a man will reap. Whatever man sows, he will reap. There are consequences to your actions. And and Reuben maybe thought he was off the hook. That happened many years ago. My my father maybe forgave me. Maybe he forgot already. Uh, He called me. I'm still around. But that does not mean that you will not have to be held accountable for your actions of the past. There are sins that God has forgiven us from already, set us free from, but we will pay the price of those sins of the past, oftentimes for a lifetime, for a lifetime. And notice what his father is speaking to him. You're unstable. You went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And at the end of verse four, notice how he says, he went up to my couch. It is almost as if he's talking to Reuben and then he looks over at his brothers and he points at him and he says, can you believe him? He went up to my couch. He defiled my bed. This is what he did. And he looks at Reuben and he says, you know why you're unstable as water? It's because of your character. So now the birthright is divided among all the brothers instead of being centralized in one person, which was Reuben. Now it's divided. We have to be very careful. And as God's word tells us, be sure that your sin will find you out. And what is God's wisdom there in verse three and four that he is now decentralizing the authority that was to go to Reuben amongst now the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Reuben here is paying a high price for his instability. A lot of people have pay a high price for instability, for having an emotional character, for doing things out of order. You see, as much as anything that God looks at to promote someone to spiritual leadership, you know what he looks at? In order to promote someone to spiritual leadership and inheritance and blessing, he looks for a stable character. If you're unstable, God can't use you. If you're unstable emotionally, God cannot use you. If you're unstable as water, how can God trust you or depend on you, or steward to you, give to you the spiritual responsibility if you're unstable in your character. You cannot lead God's people anywhere that way. You're unstable as water. You know what he's an example of here, Reuben, to us, as even as we look through the New Testament, that the, the first can be the last ones. Just because you're the oldest, just because you have the most experience, just because you're gifted doesn't mean you're gonna be the one that's responsible. In Matthew 19, verse 30, you know what Jesus said? But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He was firstborn, but he was last. He did not receive the inheritance that the Lord had for him because he was unstable in Character. I want you to write that in your notes. We pay a high price of usefulness when we're unstable in our character. Maybe gifted, but you're unstable. You're not committed. There's no discipline. There's no devotion. There's no maturity. You're one way one day. You're another way another day. Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said this, and I quote, a man may have great opportunities and yet lose them. Uncontrolled passions may make him very little who otherwise might have been very great. What was it? An uncontrolled passion. Reuben had this uncontrolled passion of pride, of lust, of self-will. And this man that God had intended to be used became a man that was very little because of his character. Unstable as water. Notice Verse 5 through 7, Simeon and Levi. This is the only two sons that Jacob addresses together in a group. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Notice what he calls them. He calls them instruments of cruelty or weapons of violence. That's who you are, Simeon and Levi. Why is it that he calls them that to both Simeon and Levi? Because they were the ones that wiped out all the men of Shechem in the retaliation when those men raped their sister Dinah, Genesis 34. And Jacob was unable to control his sons. They went out and did a reckless act in now a form of retaliation to get even, to have revenge. Now they have to pay the price when it comes to inheritance. Notice verse six, let my soul, let not my soul enter their council, their assembly, their meeting. Let my, not my honor be united to their assembly. May I not never be associated in honor, in attendance, in association, in plans to anything that they're doing. For in their anger, they slew a man and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Do you see these two sins that caused them their blessing? For Reuben, it was the sin of presumptuousness. For Simeon and Levi, it was two sins. The first one was anger, the second one was self-will. Would you circle those in your Bible, verse six? Anger and self-will. This is why you've become an instrument of cruelty. Instead of an instrument of righteousness, you've become an instrument of cruelty. Instead of helping you, you have harmed. You have this reputation. I I never want to be joined to you. May my name not even be associated in your meetings or my honor be present in your plans. Why? Because you're men of anger. You are men of violence. You know what the real problem was in Simon and Levi's life? The real problem was anger. And from anger, it was rooted in the sin of self-will. You know why oftentimes we become very angry? Because we want our will instead of God's will. And we're upset that we can't get what we want. So these are two men that are motivated by anger. They're motivated by self-will. I'm going to do whatever I have to to get what I want. I'm going to satisfy the frustration of my anger in the flesh. Notice their anger is not a righteous anger. Their anger is rooted in one thing, self-will. Self-will. Get my way, get my own will. That is the wrong place for anger to come from. Did you know that? It is not a righteous anger. It is not an anger that honors God. We have to pray as we even look at these three sons that that we would say, Lord, would you help us crucify the flesh? Because we don't want to forfeit the blessing that you have for us because of presumptuous sin, because of anger or because of self-will. You want to know the difference between a godly, righteous anger and an ungodly anger? The difference between a righteous, godly anger and an ungodly anger is self-will. And they had both of these problems in their lives. They wanted their own way. They were angry and filled of self-will. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Paul told the church of Ephesus... Something very important that we need to hear, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. What does that mean? If you are angry, don't go to sleep, do not rest, until you have made things right with that person that you're arguing with. And yes, that's also including your spouse. You make sure you have made things right, do not let the sun go down in anger. In Ephesians 4, 31, Paul then tells the church as well, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you with all of malice, with all evil behavior or intention. The problem with these two sons is that they were motivated by anger. They were emotional. So he tells them this in verse seven, curse be their anger for it's fierce. And their wrath for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You have an anger problem. You have an an emotional problem. You have a pride problem that you are self-willed, motivated by anger. Therefore, you can not inherit the blessing that God had for your life. What does he tell them? I I will divide them in Jacob across the entire nations of Israel. You will be scattered. You know what God arranged through Jacob for these two tribes That they would never again be able to assemble together because they weren't good for one another. You're gonna be scattered. You'll you'll never come together again because of what you did when you conspired together to gain revenge in anger and in self-will. In fact, Simeon became the weakest tribe of the 12. He was scattered among the tribes. In fact, later on, he went in to the tribe of Judah, was absorbed by that tribe of Judah. Levi never had a land of its own inheritance. But later, then God used the tribe of Levi as priesthood, and they are known as the Levites in the Old Testament. You know what these three tribes illustrate to us even as we look at a few verses already? It illustrates the principle that is very clear for us that the sins of our past can come back and haunt us. They can be forgiven, but they may carry consequences that we may face for a lifetime. Very important how we live our lives. Very important. Verse eight, Judah You are he whom your brothers shall praise. And it's a play on words there in verse eight because his name means let God be praised." And Judah didn't have an exemplary character. If you studied his life up until this point or through the beginning of his life, he suggested in Genesis that Joseph would be sold for profit and not killed. This was the man that did this. He didn't deal faithfully as he committed sexual immorality with his daughter-in-law Tamar and went in with a prostitute whom he thought she was. But towards the end of his life, you know what Judah did to redeem himself? He offered himself as a substitute in the place of Benjamin. Do you remember that? He wanted to be the substitute sacrifice for his brother Benjamin. Take me and let them go free. Therefore, God used him to rise to the occasion and be the spiritual leader of the tribes here. You see this here mentioned in verse 8, your brothers shall praise, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your children's children shall bow down before you. He was appointing him to be the leader of the twelve. He calls him here, Judah is a a lion's well from a, pray my son you have gone up he bows down he lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him or who shall arouse him after he has lied down he's describing the power he's describing the authority of this young lion who is described in the tribe of judah overall this blessing that is given to judah is a perfect example to us of god's richness his goodness his grace his mercy on our lives when we are undeserving. He was undeserving of all of this. Why is it, Lord, that you would promote Judah? Because of God's grace. But Judah messed up twice. But God's grace and mercy is much bigger than that. When God promotes, when God calls you up hither, it's not because of your faithfulness, simply. It has everything to do with him. A perfect example here that God's grace was on his life. In fact, as it continues there in verse nine there and in verse 10, it describes Judah as that young lion. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of who? Judah. Judah was the tribe that preserved the messianic line from where Jesus came from. He came from the tribe of the nation of Israel of Judah. In fact, you see it there prophesied in verses 10 to 12 that the Messiah would come from his descendants. Verse 10, "The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What's a scepter? It's like a staff or a rod. It's a symbol of royal authority. The royal authority will not, notice what he says, depart from your tribe. It will not leave the tribe, the staff or the rod of royal authority. Not only this, verse 10, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. No one will come to give law or no one will take away royal authority outside of the tribe of Judah. You would be in power and you'll be the lawgiver. And Jacob here is prophesying that the line of Judah would bring the Messiah and he would produce kings, including the king of kings. Until Shiloh comes, circle that word, until Shiloh comes. The the word Shiloh is important. It points to the Messiah. In fact, we're always following in genealogies the line that leads to Jesus. Shiloh means the coming one or the one whom it belongs to. The law would not depart from Judah. The royal authority would not depart from Judah until Shiloh, the one whom it belongs to, the Messiah, comes. You see how it points and it gives us reference to the Messiah here? The one who nations will obey. In fact, until Shiloh comes into him, notice the deity there in him, shall be the obedience of the people and to him who people obey. The nations will obey. He alone has the right to claim the rulership over the nation of Israel. The right of tribal identity and the ability to execute authority will not depart from your tribe, Judah, until the lawgiver, he who has the king of kings and lords of laureates, the Messiah comes. That is what he's telling Judah here. He goes on there in verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine. And his donkey's called to choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now. This would not seem to be wise stewardship when you see this hyperbole described, but it's the hyperbole of abundance being described here. When the king of kings, who has royal authority, who is the lawgiver, establishes his kingdom, his reign, the abundance, the health, the beauty, because he has destroyed all enemies to human life and all evil and sin has been removed, there's going to be an abundance there's going to be a beauty there's going to be an excellence of the way that the earth and the new earth is made from that one would tie a donkey to the vine you would never do that today because you know that the vine would become ruined you would never now enclose now wash your clothes in the blood of grapes here as it would describe there because you would waste the grapes. So what is it describing? The abundance of the day of the Messiah's reign. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What does this represent? Vitality and victory. The Messiah who would bring vitality and victory, peace and plenty, abundance. What should we be reminded of when we think about Judah, when we think about Shiloh until the one whom it belongs to. It reminds us that we are to live a life that's submissive and fully obedient to the Lord, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who's the lawgiver and who has all royal authority over our lives. He rules and he reigns. Lord, may we be submissive to your authority over us. Verse 13, Zebulun, Notice what he tells Zebulun now. She'll dwell by the haven of the sea. He's gonna leave by the beach. He shall become a a haven for ships and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. If you study and read what he's telling Zebulun, he's saying, I'm going to extend you to Sidon. Later on through scripture and chronicles, we learn that Zebulun was a group of people or a tribe that was known for a brave and excellent reputation. When you think of Zebulun, think of a people that are brave, that are excellent. In fact, Deborah and Barak, through the book of Judges, praised the men of Zebulun because they rallied together for the cause of fighting Sisera. In 1 Chronicles twelve thirty three, notice what it says, of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle. This is Zebulun, they went out to battle, expert in war, with all weapons of war, stout-hearted. That means brave, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. These were the men of Zebulun, brave, expert in war, stout-hearted, with all weapons, ready to fight. Verse 14, from Zebulun to Ishakar. Ishakar means man of wages. Ishakar, he calls him a sturdy donkey. Lying down between two burdens, he describes him, you've been resting between two saddle packs. You have a burden on one side and a burden on the other side. Ishakar, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. What happened here to Ishakar? He saw that the land was good. He started to plow in that soil. He started to carry burdens and he found himself working hard labor. What does he describe Ishakar to be? Uh, Strong people. You're gonna be a strong people, Ishakar. You're not gonna be afraid to carry burdens. This is the kind of people that we wanna be, hard people, hardworking people that are not afraid to carry burdens. You're gonna be hardworking. You're gonna be devoted. You're gonna be devoted to the soil. It would describe him. You're gonna be a humble servant so that other people enjoy rest. This is who Ishakar was to be. Now, do you see here that out of Leah, he's only described Leah's sons. Six sons, three of the six sons lost God's blessing, lost God's best for their lives. Why? Because of their sins. What does it remind us of even as we look at those sons? They remind us that the purity and self-control are essential for godly character. You want the blessing of God, you want a godly character, then what does God require of you? Purity and self-control. What is it that these sons needed? Purity and self-control. What is it that God requires of you? Purity and self-control. To stay on the path that God has you on. That you would receive everything that he has planned for your life. That you would not be living on second best, but God's best for your life. Purity and self-control. Let's look at the sons of Bila now from verses 16 to 21. He goes now, speaking of Dan. Dan shall judge his people. That's what his name means, judge. When you think of the tribe of Dan, think of the judges. You're gonna govern now the people like any other tribe or as one of the tribes of Israel. And through the tribe of Dan, he gave the nation of Israel one of the most famous judges as you read in scripture, which was Samson. But notice what he describes in regards to Dan. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider shall fall backward. Dan, you're gonna be like a poisonous snake who bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. You're gonna be one that is ready to attack your enemies. But also like a snake, notice what Dan was. If you study the tribe of Dan, you know that some of the... The descendants of Dan were the ones that would abandon their faith in the Lord and they would be deceived, bringing idolatry into the nation of Israel. This is what Dan also caused. They ushered idolatry to Israel. Now, do you see in verse 18 how he pauses to commune with God now, Jacob? He has just pronounced prophecy over his sons. He's not done yet. But he pauses to, to call on God to explain that he's fellowshiping with God, that he can't wait to be with God. This is for God, verse 18. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. This is amazing. This is one of those verses that you just underline in your Bible, and, and you say, Lord, I, I'm waiting for your salvation. The word salvation in the Hebrew is Yahweh, or is the word where we receive Jesus, O Lord. You know what Jacob was saying? Lord, I'm trusting that I'm going to see you soon. He's exclaiming now that his trust is in God's salvation. I know I'm going to see you soon. Lord, I'm looking forward to the time we're working to meet face to face in eternity. There are too many times in our lives that we get so distracted by what's taking place here on earth that we don't pause to say, oh Lord, I'm waiting for your salvation. I can't wait to see you, God. Do you see here how he... His heart is waiting on one thing. His heart is waiting on the Lord's salvation for his life. He he knew he was at the end of his race. And you know what his heart is fixed on? It's not fixed on the things of this earth. It's fixed on things of above. If then you were raised with Christ, what does the Bible tell us in Colossians chapter three? Seek those things which are above, set your mind on things that are above, where Christ is sitting. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, "Oh, what a happy breathing space this is. When you and I also are near our journey's end, may we be able to say as Jacob did, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord." When we as Christians we come to the end of our race, it's not a a place of only sorrow. You know what it's a place of hope and expectation knowing that we're ready to meet the Lord. This is what we've been trusting our entire Christian life. This is the message of hope that we preach. This is what our faith is all about, eternal life, the resurrection. It is not simply grief, it is not simply sorrow. In Thessalonians it says, I want you to know so that you won't be ignorant and you don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Our sorrow is filled with hope. I recently talked to a few people in our congregation, who their father went to be home with the Lord. Some of the people that I've met with in those conversations, whose countenance, whose words are more filled with hope than anyone else I've ever seen. Because they're that much close to eternity. You know what happens? Heaven becomes that much more personal. We don't lose our loved ones. You know, when you lose someone, you don't know where they went. But when their faith and entrusted in Jesus, you know where they're at. And then the presence of the Lord. Verse 19, the sons of Zilpah now. He goes with Gad, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him. But he shall triumph at last, he says. You're gonna be attacked by bands, but you will attack them as they retreat. Gad would endure hardship, but the ultimate victory would be promised through the tribe of Gad. Then comes Asher. There, bread from Asher. Notice what it would describe bread from Asher shall be rich, and they shall yield royal dignities. And notice what he says here that Asher will be blessed or rich. He's saying, You're going to be happy. You're going to be dining on rich food. Your land will yield food that will produce now resources for kings. Naphtali, verse 21, is a deer. This is another tribe. Let loose or set free. Naphtali, he uses beautiful words. This is amazing. Notice how he describes the deer and then beautiful words. This tribe, Naphtali, uses beautiful words. In fact, Naphtali lived in the region of northern Galilee, if you follow the tribe of Naphtali through scripture. And some of them, so much of the ministry of Jesus, you know, where it happened in, in, in northern Galilee. So it's fitting here, as you look at, uses beautiful words, that this promise of hope and joy would be given to a people who lived in the place where Jesus spoke most of his ministry, Naphtali. Now he goes to the sons of Rachel. In verse 22, Joseph, and this is amazing. We can, we can go through the rest of the night just going through Joseph because there's an entire message there through Joseph. You know what he calls them? A, a fruitful bow, or now vine. And there are five things I want you to look at when you look at the life of Joseph, and I would have you write them down tonight that you would remember these five things. Because God used Joseph. He he was a man of integrity, of blameless integrity that represents Christ in the Old Testament, a type of Christ through the nation and tribes of of Israel. He calls him one thing here first. This is who you are, Joseph, you are fruitful. That's the first quality and characteristic that Joseph was described as. In fact, write this in your notes today, Joseph is fruitful, a fruitful vine or fruitful tree it would describe. But what was he fruitful in? When you look at the life of Joseph, he was fruitful in character. His character gave godly fruit. He was growing deeper. He was growing wide. He was constantly growing, deepening, developing in his walk, in fellowship with God, trusting in who God was in his life. Joseph went deep. Joseph went wide when it came to God's marvelous love. He, He knew the soil and the depth of the love of God in his life. This is why he was so fruitful. So it describes a man that has depth, that has fruit when it comes to character, that has width when it comes to influence. That is the fruit that took place in the life of Joseph. He was fruitful. Why was he fruitful? Because he was by a well. Not only was he fruitful, he was also faithfully abiding. Number two, faithfully abiding. You want to be fruitful in your life, then you have to be faithfully abiding abiding by the well. What is the well? The life source where you are watered, where you are strengthened by the spring. He's drawing source from the well. You are fruitful because you are by the well. You are fruitful because you're faithfully abiding. I mean, this is amazing. When you look at the life of Joseph, whether it was in the pit, in the prison, in the palace, by the well, the center and focus of his life was always God. He was faithfully abiding and planted by the source that gives life. In fact, we have to ask ourselves, where are we by? Are we by the well? Are we by the source that gives life right now? That we would also be fruitful, like Joseph was fruitful in godly character? You know what Psalms 1 tells us? Psalms 1, go home, read it tonight. Psalms 1, 1 through 3, I just want to read it to you right now. Blesses the man, the first three verses. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates on it day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of waters, notice the spring, the well, faithfully abiding, that brings forth fruits in its season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You you want to give fruit in your life, then you have to be by the well. You have to be by the spring. You have to be what we call abiding. When you abide in Christ Jesus, your life is loaded with fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. In John 15, 5. What did Jesus Himself say? I'm the vine, you are the branches, you abides in me, and I'm you. Bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. What is Joseph an example of? Of a faith, a fruitful follower of the Lord who is faithfully abiding in the life source, sharing the godly character that comes from a life that not only is saved, is sanctified, but is serving the Lord as well. What are you called to be as you're faithfully abiding? I'm saved, so then I'm sanctified. I'm abiding in the life source. I'm drawing life from the well and I'm also serving. I'm giving fruit now. It's the fruit of the Spirit that needs to happen in our lives. So he was fruitful. He was faithfully abiding, but notice what it describes here in verse 22. His branches run over the wall. This is how how now healthy he's expanding in fruits. Have you ever been to your backyard? Maybe you've had a neighbor that has, a fruit tree, right? And then the branches go over your wall, you're excited. If it's a fruit tree, lemon avocado, you man, these are mine. Well what happens here in Joseph's life? He's fruitful. Why? Because he's faithfully abiding, but then he's overflowing. In fact, number three, write this down. He was bountiful where he was affluent. He was bountiful while he was affluent. What does it mean to be bountiful? He was sharing. He was overflowing with blessings. This is what happens to the life of a Christian who is fruitful because he's faithful by the well. He begins to be a blessing to other people around them. He begin to be a vessel to give life to other people because of the fruit that is taking place in your life. You know, it's one thing to be a Christian; it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be a blessing. You know what Joseph was—a blessing. He was bountiful while he was affluent. You know, God didn't save you so you can live a selfish life. God saved you so that you may bear fruit, and that others may benefit from the fruits that others would enjoy the blessing of the fruit that's taking place in your life. When people think about you, do they rejoice? They say, well, I can't wait till that person comes. Their life is so refreshing. They're encouraging. They bring so much fruit. We are refreshed. It's a healthy environment where they come of encouragement. Or is it a burden? Well, I can't believe that person's come. Everybody be quiet. No one talk now. Are you a blessing or a burden when you walk into the room? Is there fruit that's overflowing into your neighbor's side? Is there fruit overflowing to the person that sits next to you at work, that, that next door office? Because Joseph lived a life that was fruitful. It, it is possible, I, will, I want you to know this, to, to have a saved soul but a wasted life. No fruit. No fruit. You know what the ancient rabbis used to say? Your life is like the sea of the north or like the the, the sea of the down south. They would say this as a lesson to teach people regarding generosity. Is your life like the the sea of the north or the sea down south? You know what the sea of the north is? The Galilee, it's very verdant, lush, it has a lot of vegetation and, and, and greenery uh, around it. It grows crops grow around it, but not the Sea of the South, which is the Dead Sea. Nothing grows around the Dead Sea, nothing grows inside the Dead Sea. One reason, and one reason only. In the Galley, there's an, there's an inlet of water that's coming in, but in the galley, there's also an outlet of water that comes out. This is what keeps the life flowing in the Galilee, life flows in the Galilee because there's water coming in and life flows in the Galilee specifically because there's water going out. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Why is there no life in the Dead Sea? Because there's no outlet. Do you see how so many Christians life, they can be receiving, 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 but there's no outlet. How are you gonna be a blessing? When there's no outlet, there is no life. There is no spiritual life. The water at the Dead Sea is, is stagnant water there. And maybe as a Christian, oftentimes we're just taking blessing and growth and spiritual resources and growing even in, in, in material things and, and blessings financially, but you're only taking. But are you, is there an outlet where you're also giving? Is there any fruit from your life? Joseph here had a fruit to share to other people. He was fruitful, he was faithfully abiding, he was bountiful while he was affluent. And notice here, his life, number four, was filled with foes as well. Do you like how he moves from agriculture to military illustrations? Well, what does this teach us now that his life was filled with foes? That life is filled with both good times and also bad times. Just because he was faithful and abiding and fruitful and bountiful well, he was affluent didn't mean he did not go under attack. He was also attacked. He was also hated by others. No, when God is using your life, when there's fruit coming forth from your life, you know what you're gonna experience? Attacks. So don't be surprised. Look at the attack there, as read in verse 23. The archers have bitterly grieved him. They shot at him and hated him. Notice he is hated by others. He's been under attack. He's been savagely shot at. He's been harassed. He was spoken of. His brother sold him. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife when she tempted him and he refused. This is all speaking of of Joseph's testimony. He went under attack. He was falsely accused. He he was shot at. These arrows came at him. You, You know what's amazing here about this verse? It would describe this verse here in verse 24. But... His bow remained in strength. We'll just circle that, verse 24. You may be attacked, but your bow can still remain strong. This is not a verse that would discourage us to think, well, now because I'm being attacked, that means that I retreat. No, he was attacked, but his bow remained strong. Well, why was there strength in the bow still? And the arms of his hands were made strong, not only his bow, but also his hands. Both found strength. If you're going through attacks right now, I want you to know this, both. That which is in your hand and your hands itself can recover strength. While you're going through attacks. Now notice what happened here. This is where the the strength came from. The, The bow remained in strength. The arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd and the stone of Israel." Why? Because of the hands of God the Father, the mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd now. It's almost as a father standing next to his son and grabbing that bow and that arrow with him. And the little kid thinks, well, I'm doing it. I'm the one that's pulling it back, but it's actually the father holding the hands and the arms of the son and telling him, okay, son, do this. Now pull that arrow back on that bow. Why did his hands become strong? By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. You know how your hands can become strong right now? By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. You know what he was here, number five? He was steadfast while he was attacked. He was steadfast while he was attacked. Today you can be steadfast while you're attacked. You know why? Because of the mighty hands of God. You know why it describes him as the mighty God of Jacob? Who's the mighty God of Jacob? The God who is able. He strengthens your hands. The God who is powerful. The God who is omnipotent. The mighty God of Jacob strengthened the hands of Joseph so that he would be steadfast even while he was attacked. Today, if you're being attacked, do not be moved. Do not be swayed, do not become unstable. Would you say, Lord, with your hands, would you strengthen mine? Would you strengthen my bow so that I remain strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob? Can we pray?